The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 500 years ago this month, King Henry VIII of England and King Francis I of France met for a summit in northern France at what is known as a field of the cloth of gold. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring these events with Professor Glenn Richardson of St Mary's University. He's the author of A History of the Field of the Cloth of Gold and has also written a feature on it for the July issue of BBC History magazine. Putting the questions to him was the magazine's editor, Rob Attar. I wonder if we could begin actually with the name. Why was the summit called the Field of the Cloth of Gold? It's called the Field of Cloth of Gold because it's a retrospective title because of the material which was used, uh, one of the richest fabrics which was available in the 16th century, deliberately ostentatious, and and the name says it all. It's actually cloth with uh, gold woven into it. Uh, and it's used normally only by, by monarchs and very high-ranking people. Uh, it was used uh, as part of the uh, the items of clothing. It was also used to cover or dress a lot of the canvas tents which were put up to house both the English and the French entourages at the event. And it subsequently became known as, as a, um, a way of referring to its extravagance as the uh, Field of Cloth of Gold. So you said it was a retrospective name. At what point did it get this name? Relatively soon afterwards, when I was doing the book, I tried to find out when it was first used, and it, it's not it's not easy to trace, but uh, it uh, seems to have been thought of in those terms not that far forward into into Henry's reign, and, uh, uh, and the name has stuck uh, ever since. Where exactly was this field, and why was this location chosen? It was in an area which is now northern France, part of Picardy, called the, it was then called the Pale of Calais, which was an area originally conceded to the English during the course of the Hundred Years' War after Edward III's conquest of Calais. So it was, it was basically like um, territorial land around Calais that protected uh, and, and had English domination over it. So technically it's English territory. And it was held between the town of Guine which is in the Pale of Calais, uh, about 12 miles or so southeast from Calais, but very close to the French border uh, with a, a small town called Ardre. And so King Francis was based at Ardre, 
and Henry was based at Geen. And the whole area had lots of swamps, and they used to dig for peat in, in the Middle Ages. But by the 16th century, a lot of that had uh, become marshland and sort of filled in with water. There's a couple of rivers that flow through there. So it's very flat, very marshy. But there is near Ardor, two or three miles of, of what's now farming, agricultural kind of flat land. And that's probably, nobody knows for sure exactly where everything happened, but that's probably where, for example, the tournament field was set up. If you drive between the town of Geen and Ardor these days, on the left-hand side there's a granite post or, or stella which has got you know sight of the field of cloth of gold on it, probably because that's the only bit of flat land <laughs> between the two towns. Nobody really knows where it happened, but that's the general area. And obviously you've got two two kings here trying to decide where they're going to meet. Why was the decision taken to hold it in what was then English territory? Good question. The um, original plan was to hold it at another place called Sandingfield. But I think as the project developed and as they realised that they wanted to, which takes us into why it was held, but as they realised just how big this thing was going to be, there was a rapid realisation that they'd need to find somewhere where there was sufficient uh, flat land where you could accommodate the kinds of numbers that we're talking about. And uh, Henry was very keen that if there was any concessions to be made, that Francis would be, would be making them. So he was, he was quite keen to have it on English territory because that would be a compliment to him if the French king had to come, as it were, from France into England, which he technically did, uh, when he came to the Pale. I think Francis probably saw it in a more practical uh, way, that it was closest to his town of Ardre. Um, there, there was a lot of tension and there was a lot of uncertainty about what was really going on behind the scenes. For all the, the talk of peace and amity, there was also a very high level of distrust uh, right up until the meeting of the two kings. And I think Ardre afforded Francis a kind of solid base, as it were. If things went wrong, he could get back there. And for that, he was prepared to make the concession to come onto English territory. OK, then. So what actually was the purpose of this summit? The purpose of the summit was to have a tournament, essentially. The tournament was the way in which medieval elites celebrated peace and peacemaking, somewhat ironically for us. If you can't actually be at war, then you have to pretend to be at war. And it was, it was a way in which uh, an, an honourable ideal of peace could be made glamorous, exciting, chivalric, to the kinds of people who've got to participate in it and who've got to believe in it. So it's got to accord with, with the two kings' status. Uh, and so the, the peace which I'm referring to, uh, the peace and alliance was agreed two years earlier, in 1518, at something called the Treaty of London, known more usually as the Treaty of Universal Peace. This was a very grand project, which uh, was a response by the papacy initially, Pope Leo X, he was aware that the Ottomans were advancing into the Middle East, they'd conquered Syria, they were threatening Persia, they were moving into the Balkans. Something must be done kind of thing. Uh, and his idea was a truce between European princes. And he posits that in about 1517. Cardinal Wolsey gets hold of that and looking for an opportunity to put Henry VIII back at the forefront of international affairs says, we can go one better here. Let's have what's effectively an international non-aggression pact. Everybody signs up. Uh, if anybody breaks the treaty, everyone else gangs up on him and demands restitution or whatever. So uh, a kind of collective security pact, as, as 
would be tried later, of course, with things like, I suppose, the League of Nations, the United Nations, or maybe more specifically, something like NATO. And perhaps surprisingly, it chimes with a lot of the, the rhetoric at the time. There'd been wars in Italy for best part of a century. The Hundred Years' War wasn't that long ago. The, the idea that, that Europe was sick to death of, of wars and wanted peace had a sort of public cachet, which Wolsey traded on. And so a lot of the rhetoric of universal peace and peace within Christendom was deployed. What Wolsey's really trying to do, as I've said, is to have a vehicle by which Henry can, can be brought back on, onto centre stage. And all that was agreed in October 1518. There's big embassies coming from France and everywhere else, and all done with great ceremony at St Paul's Cathedral in, um, in London. And part of the uh, universal peace was an alliance between England and France, the ancient enemies. So here you are, here's an example of what can be done. Two great enemies are now going to become allies, as they haven't really before. And so that's agreed. Henry's daughter Mary's betrothed to the Dauphin Francois, the son of, of Francis. And it was agreed as part of all of this that the two kings were going to meet and at this tournament affirm their alliance as, as brothers in arms, you know, in, in defence of Christendom. They were due to meet in 1519, but uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian died in 1519, necessitating an election uh, to succeed him, in which both Henry and Francis competed against the man who eventually won the competition, of course, Charles of Habsburg, then King of Spain, or King of Aragon, who duly succeeded his grandfather Maximilian in 1519. So with all of that going on, there was no time to meet that summer. So it was postponed. We know about postponements at the moment. Uh, it was postponed till 1520. And so that's why two years later, the two kings met uh, where they did. Now, is there a tension here between the need to create peace in Europe and the fact that kings at this time, and certainly in the previous centuries, had loved this idea of being shown as a brave warrior and winning battles? Yes, there is. Uh, there's absolutely a tension there because that's really what they both want to do. And they all have chivalric dynastic claims, one against the other. Henry, of course, still claims to be the king of France. Francis has a dynastic claim which he successfully carried out in May when he became king in 1515. He had conquered the Duchy of Milan uh, in northern Italy, to his great uh, credit as he saw it, and Charles also had a claim to Milan. So these kings are more or less at each other's, not quite throats, but they, they pose threats to each other. And this is what I mean about glamorising the ideal of peace. If you're going to get them to agree to that, it's got to be done in a spectacular way in which they can show off their potential. Because that's what I think this is all about. It really, whatever its, its surface rhetoric is, it's really about showing each side showing the other what it can potentially do. So don't take me on is the sort of negative side. Or if you want to be my ally, look what I can offer. And that's certainly what Henry is trying to do, and I think Francis responds in, in kind. The fact that it's significant or appreciated as significant uh, is indicated by Charles V, not wanting to be involved, but wanting to remind everybody that he was still there. He was in Spain in 1519, having gone there two years earlier to, to claim his, his crown of Aragon. And as it happened, in May 1520, he was planning to go back to the Netherlands and Germany to accept his, his uh, title as Holy Roman Emperor. And at about this time uh, in that year, 1520, he was in La Coruña, 
waiting for the winds to change so that he could sail up to Britain and or to England. And, and he did. He, he called in to Dover towards the end of May to meet Henry, then went on into the Netherlands. But he also made sure that Henry agreed to meet him after he had uh, met with Francis. So in a sense, the three of them are there. OK, Charles is on the margins. He's, he's not directly involved. But I think we best see it as, a, as a, a tripartite kind of meeting in which each side is trying to intimidate but also reassure and, above all, impress the others with their, with their power. So that's, as I read it, how they reconcile what you've rightly pointed out is this desire for valour, for, for glory. I think Wolsey's great skill is to be able to suggest, well, if you can't necessarily go to war, and Henry can't really afford to go to war then, well, then why not make peacemaking as magnificent, as spectacular, as, as status-enhancing as war is otherwise? That's my reading of what's going on. Talking about the spectacular nature of the field of cloth of gold, how much of a logistical challenge was it to put this all together? Well, on the face of it, uh, quite, uh, quite a challenge. And, and that, again, I think is part of the whole thing. The, the fact that it will take uh, significant logistical expertise and that the kings can both command it and produce it is, is part of it. How, how conscious it was or whether it was just uh, implicit, I'm not entirely sure. They didn't make it easy for themselves in the fact they kept delaying on deciding when exactly it was going to happen so that in the end, it all had to be done pretty quickly. Having said which... Both kings, of course, have quite complex military organisations at their disposals. Francis has, as I said, invaded Milan. Uh, Henry's had experience of warfare in 15, 12, 13 in his first attack against France. So they have the infrastructure to be able to, to do this sort of thing. And it is to the military which this is committed. I, I suspect it might be different in our time. But So, for example, the tents which are made by the French, they're constructed down in Tours, which is a town on the Loire Valley, which is a big cloth town. Uh, but the making of them, the transporting of them and the setting up of them is charged to the artillery department um, of Francis's army. And uh, they actually cooperate with members of the, the Navy as well uh, in putting these tents up because <laughs> sailors know how to go up and down ladders and hang stuff, canvas and all the rest of it. Um, and similarly, on the English side, uh, Wolsey works very closely uh, with Henry's navy, arranging shipping, arranging victualling, getting barges to bring all the supplies across. So the organisation really starts in February and it is its fullest in April and early May. And so the logistics are considerable, but they are within the scope of the military infrastructure at the time. Effectively, you're putting together two comparatively small armies to go a relatively short distance. So it, it's, it's doable. Beyond the, the two monarchs, who are the other people who attend the summit? Well, in short, Henry takes just about the whole nobility of England with him because, of course, he has a small kingdom. There's not quite as many people and he doesn't have quite as many nobles. But uh, just about everybody, including the great dukes like Buckingham and, and Suffolk, the Duke of Norfolk doesn't go. He stays behind and presides over the Royal Council in England. And the other highest-ranking noble in England who doesn't go to the field is Princess Mary, who remains behind. But she's visited 
by a delegation on behalf of her future husband, the Dauphin, while her parents are over in the Pas-de-Calais. So, yes, Catherine goes, of course, with Henry. On the French side, Francis brings all his leading courtiers and nobles. He brings his mother, Louise of Savoy, who is still one of his chief counsellors. In a funny way, she's almost like she works very closely with Wolsey, in the sense that they're both very influential on their respective monarchs, and they're both committed to ideals of peace, at least on the surface. So she's a really interesting figure. Uh, Queen Claude, of course, his sister, Marguerite uh, of Navarre. I could list you half a dozen dukes and, and counts and all of them. It's basically the leading members. The, the clergy, of course, come, the cardinals, the archbishop. So all the top people, to put it that way, supplemented by another, say, a thousand or so, what we might call middle-ranking nobles, gentry in England. One of them, for example, is a guy called Sir Adrian Fortescue, who lives uh, in... Stoner Park in Oxfordshire. It's still there. That was his uh, family home near Henley. And he was sent a letter telling him to turn up at Dover on such and such a date with 10, I think, tall, uh, well-groomed yeomen. And he was part of Queen Catherine's entourage. So that's how they formed this great this concourse of people, that each of the nobles had to bring servants and attendants with them. And you add all that together, add all the horses together, and you get a figure of about 6,000 people, more or less, on either side. What were these people actually doing during the course of the summit over... I mean, it's something like two weeks, was it, it took place over? Yes, yes, it, it goes for about two weeks, between about the 7th of June when the kings meet and the 24th uh, when they uh, they farewell each other. It's a, it's a very good question. <laughs> Most of the days, there's the tournament is on, and so I guess they go to watch that. But then... From what we know about the viewing stands, etc., they couldn't have accommodated everybody. I think some of them would have met with their French counterparts. Uh, a lot, a lot of them wouldn't. Uh, it was a really weird thing. I, I would have thought to to be told that, listen, mate, you're, you're going off to you're going off to France or, or to English France for a month. Oh, am I or two weeks? Am I indeed? Oh, okay, fine. What what am I going to do there? In short, they probably talked to each other. It would have been interesting for each of the two national groups because it would have been an adventure for them. You know, somebody like Fortescue could could come up with, against somebody like Charles Brandon, or you know. So I think the two groups probably spent a lot more time with each other. You know, entertaining each other, come over to my tent or come over to my place, and rather than a huge amount of Anglo-French dialogue going on at uh, at all levels, there were moments of that. There were three banquets which were held. On the Sundays, because it being Sunday, there was no jousting, of course. There were three banquets at which each court uh, entertained the leading members of the other. So Henry would go to Ardres and Francis would come from Ardres to Guine. And they began in the afternoons and they lasted, you know, five, six, seven hours. Uh, and I think quite a lot of the, the people who were there as guests rather than as servants or attendants would have been at those banquets. So that's one thing they would have been doing, uh, watching the jousting, eating and drinking, playing cards, you know, whatever. And you mentioned banquets there, and there's something that comes out a lot in, in the article you wrote for us, but what kind of food would they have eaten or what kind of scale of provisions w were needed for this event? Well, again, uh, banqueting in this context is very much an aspect of the ostentatious show uh, that both sides are committed to. So... 
the kinds of food which the high nobility would eat. As we know, their, their diet is very much centred on meat. Uh, so you have uh, a lot of beef, lamb, uh, mutton, you have fish, because there are also smaller banquets and things uh, within the two groups given by the king to his own people at times. The fish, uh, but it was all done very ostentatiously and spectacularly. The, the banquets were uh, a series of what they call courses, but they're almost entire dinners in themselves. There's not like, you know, entree, main and pudding like we'd have. They have about 10 of those, a succession of uh, courses, which incorporate both sweet and savoury elements. So, for example, I think I, I put in the article about how it's known that, that uh, peacocks, for example, were served. They'd be stripped of their skins and feathers, cooked, and then redressed in their own plumage with their beaks painted in gold and served on you know big platters and all done with music and trumpets. And so it was all done as an impressive display of the wealth of each king to his own people as well as to the opposition and as a way of, of gift-giving, as complementing the other, the other court, which is interesting why the two kings never actually eat together formally. They do have a, a snack every now and then together and a drink, but at no time does Henry directly entertain Francis or vice versa. And I think that's designed as part of this intense protocol that was observed to keep the kings equal at all times. Because they're allies and they're making peace as equals, at, at no time can one um, risk not giving as much to the other or being obligated to them for greater hospitality or whatever. So to avoid that, at each banquet, it is absolutely clear that whoever is the king there is, is the top man. And the easiest way to do that is, as I said, for Henry to be entertained by the French court and Francis by the English court. And it seemed to work quite well. And, of course, after the banquets, there's dancing, and both, both Henry and Francis are very good dancers, um, and Francis prides himself on his gallantry with, uh, with the ladies and, you know, kisses them all, and, and is all very uh, Gallic, if I can put it that way, <laughs> um, which is noted by the English commentators. Uh, Henry does his best uh, likewise. Uh, and then on the, the occasions where both kings leave at the same time so that they cross back towards each other's own home territories uh, at the same time. Again, as a, a sort of careful reciprocity and they're almost hostages for each other um, as well. When I talk about it, I always want people to think that on the surface, it's all <laughs> loveliness and happiness and peace celebrating, but there's a real competition and, and aggression that's underlying a lot of this. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They would have had, as they would have expected to have, you know, private facilities uh, in a corner of their tent or whatever. So that would have all been taken care of and there was plenty of waterways and <laughs> rivers around just to to dump the consequences <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How well do the two kings actually get on at the event? I remember reading something in the piece about them having a wrestling match at one point. Yes, the famous wrestling match. I've always, from my you know research into the, the whole of Anglo-French relations in Henry's reign, I I think they get on quite well personally. I think they are the word I use is ambivalent about each other, uh, which is that they feel a very intense competition. Particularly Henry does. Uh, they um, want to always be the top man in this 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 bromance, if you want to put it that way. Um, so there is competition, but equally, I think I think they kind of respect each other. They they probably enjoy each other's company as as, as people on the two occasions they meet in fifteen twenty, then later in fifteen thirty two. They certainly develop a whole rhetoric of of brotherly affection, and they call each other uh, good brother and, and friend, and then later after 1527, good brother and perpetual ally and all this kind of stuff. And neither of them has that kind of relationship with Charles V. Francis's relationship with Charles is almost unremittingly hostile. Charles's relationship with Henry is, well, it veers from being hostile to, you know, quite close and back again. Um, so, yeah, the, the two kings do get on. The wrestling match um, uh, is something which people endlessly talk about. It, it's only reported by one French source. Perhaps not surprisingly, the English don't mention it because Henry shapes up to Francis at one of these informal encounters, perhaps when they were watching wrestling or archery or something in the course of the events. Uh, yes, he shapes up to Francis, and Francis is initially very reluctant. But then when Henry presses, he says, oh, all right then. Um, and then uh, Henry didn't appreciate that, that Francis had been trained by a Breton wrestler, and the Bretons are famous for their wrestling ability, and he gives him what's called the, the Tour de Bretagne, which is a, a kind of throw, almost like a, a, a judo or, or karate throw, and he ends up on his back. And, you know, he gets up again and says, oh, uh, let's have another go, um, uh, best of three kind of thing, um, to which Francis just refuses because so... So comprehensive was the was the throw that he wasn't required by the rules to give Henry another another go. So how Henry got out of that, <laughs> uh, how he saved his 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 face after that, I'm not sure. But uh, but then there are those um, who believe it didn't take place. It was just something made up by the French, and you know, I'd I'd like to think that it did because it's kind of just the sort of thing I can imagine Henry doing, um, and probably like literally wanting to get to grips with with his opponent, you know, um, just kind of shake him and all, say, look, you know, get real. Um, you, you need to involve me in everything that you're doing. Otherwise, I'll, I'll make life difficult for you. But he uh, ended up on his back. But not to worry. So I suppose we should think about what Henry was like at this point, because he's not the kind of bloated, ogreish tyrant of his later years, is he? He's still a fairly fit, athletic young man. He is, yes. Um, he's, what, 29 years old. Uh, he's six foot two. He's beginning to sort of thicken out a bit. Um, but he's not, as you say, he's, he's not the sort of bloated uh, Holbein uh, Henry um, of our imagination now. And it, it is hard to see past that, that great figure. So he's uh, quite appealing and still fairly relaxed about the power of his own monarchy. Uh, I think as far as he's concerned, this is all going really quite well. 
Um, okay, it's difficult to have to be nice and polite and all the rest of it. But but he's also gregarious. He, he enjoys company. Um, he liked being the centre of attention. You could say much the same thing about Francis uh, at the age. He's slightly younger. He's about 24, 25 when, when this takes place. But, yeah, they're both still young men. We, we may talk about the tournament, but just in in the respect of their the way they got on, uh, they also, because of this competition, they, they never fought against each other at the tournament. Instead, they were the joint hosts of the challengers, as it were, um, who who uh, offer the tournament to responders. And this perhaps comes back to your questions to what people were doing. I, su- I suppose quite a few of the, the gentlemen who were there were there to joust, uh, people like Charles Brandon and others. We have in the College of Arms still the, the tournament checks, which shows you the list of all the, the French and English gentlemen who uh, competed, and there were several hundred of them. Um, so that would take care of what a lot of them were doing. Uh, and... Again, they fought not England against France, but in the different competitions you had different teams led alternatively by English or French noblemen, uh, and the main principal team was led jointly by the two kings. During the tournament itself, the kings were not actually taking part themselves? Yes, they were. Oh, they were? Yes. Okay. How, how did yes. they both fare? Did, did all the other nobles just let them win? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, they they both did pretty well. Uh, the, the the score checks show that, yeah, they Francis did a bit better on certain competitions. Henry's no doubt the best jouster because there's actually three principal competitions during the tournament. The first is the is the the tilting or jousting as we understand it, and which is shown in the Hampton Court painting uh, of the field, where they're riding up and down the the barrier and, and knocking people off or shattering their lances against each other. And that went on for the first three or four days. And then they moved on to what's called a tawny, which is um, a group. So group combats, mounted combats between three or four knights fighting with different weapons, etc., against each other. And there might be four or five uh, pairs of knights fighting or, or groups. And the idea was that you tried to show off your your horsemanship and all the rest of it while you're also fighting. And you got points for different kinds of hits and using different kinds of implements. And then the the third series of competitions was foot combat over specially built barriers which protected the lower half of the participant and forced them to you know, use their weapons relatively high, which, of course, meant that people watching could, could see them uh, better. Uh, and Henry has a fantastic uh, set of tournament armour made for the, the foot combats, which, for various reasons, he's not actually allowed to wear. But, yeah, it, so there was three competitions. The kings participate to some extent, not every day, but uh, to quite a few days they participate. But then they also watch from the stands with their wives and, and the other members of the court some days as well. Um, and the weather wasn't great. Uh, it rained quite a bit. There was high winds, which blew down some of the tents. When you look at the uh, the, the score checks compared to you know, another tournament you could name, it, it wasn't great, but it was uh, the standard of competition was, was reasonable for, for the occasion. And just to lower the tone a little bit, as anyone who's ever been to a summer music festival will know toilets are always a big problem do we know what they did in the field about having to provide toilets for thousands of aristocratic people <laughs> well i think 
there, there's a range of things. For, for ordinary people, there would have been uh, latrines and things uh, in, in the fields or, or next to... Don't forget, there's the two towns, Geens and Ardras, which had facilities. There's also the, the banqueting house, which Henry builds outside Geen, and that had you know facilities out the back. Um, the, the aristocrats, of course, when they're in their tented uh, pavilions or in the town... Uh, and the gentry, they would have had, as they would have expected to have, you know, private facilities uh, in a corner of their tent or whatever. So that would have all been taken care of, and there was plenty of waterways and <laughs> rivers around just to to dump the consequences. In. <laughs> yeah, so it, it would have been a mix of, as as ever in that society, according to who you were, how high up you were, the better your facilities were. Wolsey has not on this occasion, but it's specified um, when Wolsey goes to war with Henry in fifteen thirteen. It's specified that his tents, which he travelled with, he's got a, a, a private toilet accommodation. And I'm pretty sure the same would have been true in 1520. <laughs> Did the summit actually achieve its aims? By the end of, of the two or more weeks, were both sides satisfied? I think initially it does. If the aim was to show off your personal skills, your wealth, the, the kind of calibre of the people you've got with you, etc., well, then it certainly succeeds, you know. So far as we can tell, most people who were there seem to have, you know, had a good time. The competition, as I've just been saying, was was you know, entertaining and engaging, and it certainly got people talking because uh, you had, of course, representatives of many of the European states, particularly the Italian states, uh, Mantua, uh, Venice, of course, is very. The Venetians always make sure they've got representatives at any great event, and it's upon the Venetian ambassadors' reports very largely that we rely for our information on it. Um, the papacy, uh, the, as well as Wolsey, of course, and French legates, you've also got uh, the papal nuncios there writing back to Rome. Um, so, yeah, people people think this is pretty impressive. People are talking about Henry. It's interesting that uh, the French, very soon afterwards, uh, there are a number of publications uh, printed with, with royal imprimatur, describing the events and, and obviously highlighting Francis's participation. There's poems written about it by Clément Marot, who's a French court poet. Uh, the French seem to, to make a lot of it in the immediate aftermath and showing how wonderful Francis was and how he gracious he was when he met his English counterpart. The English, there's virtually nothing. I've looked for, you know, commentators and things. There's correspondence and reports to the Royal Council, etc., but nothing like the public relations side of things which the French seem to go in for. In more broad terms, uh, it certainly enabled Henry and Francis to establish, uh, as I was saying earlier, quite an effective personal relationship, always a difficult one. But when you consider what was to come in the next 20-odd years, that, that relationship proved critical for both of them at certain points. Uh, so showing that the possibility of Anglo-French relations as an axis within a very complex European situation, I think it did succeed. The problem for it succeeding as bringing in a universal peace is the, the third party, Charles. No matter how much Wolsey, you know, pontificated, almost literally, uh, and Henry blustered about being, you know, <laughs> the arbiter of international affairs... The real power of Charles V just got stronger and stronger as he consolidated his authority as emperor from 1519. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, uh, in 1521, Francis was, was worried that unless he acted quickly, 
that Charles's power would just become too great. And it wasn't that he thought Charles would attack France, but he, he felt sure that Charles would try to get Milan from him. And he really couldn't repose enough faith in Wolsey's grand scheme or Henry's support not to act. And what he tries to do, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky, but he tries a, a covert attack on uh, the emperor's territories, both in Navarre, the Kingdom of Navarre down in Spain, and also on the northeast border with, uh, with Germany or the Netherlands. And so it's a, it's a sort of covert attack in support of a guy called Robert Delamarque, uh, who had various problems with Charles. Of course, Charles sees what's really going on and counterattacks quite strongly into France. They both then put their hands up and say, you know, ref, ref, you know, he, he broke the rules. Um, look, look, he's attacked me. Make the Treaty of Universal Peace and our separate alliances, more to the point, uh, make them work, come in on my side. And of course, that's the last thing Wolsey wants, uh, is for Henry to be drawn into that. Hence, there's the peace conference, which he calls in Calais in 1521 to try and resolve it. But you know, I could talk for hours about all of that. Suffice it to say, the mechanism that was set up in 1518 to 1520 really wasn't up to the job uh, in the face of Charles V's power and Francis's aggression towards them, with consequences that, that um, followed in the next 10 years. So in that sense, it wasn't a, a great diplomatic success. But in the longer term, as I've, I've tried to argue elsewhere, that particularly in what happens in Anglo-French relations, it, it does have an impact. It, it does play its part in, in the construction of international relations thereafter. Now we're 500 years on from the field of the cloth of gold. Would you say that it's that impact on long-term international relations is why this is still a significant historical event? Yes. If you want to follow chapter and verse, it takes you through the 1520s and 30s and how Henry's break with Rome and the, the re configuring of England as somehow something separate from Christendom or Europe and, and, and a place of its own. France is still its only supporter as he does all of that. Um, that that's part of it. I think more though, for, from our point of view these days, and the reason why I was interested in it when I wrote the book is, I, whatever they were about, it, I think it gives you a really interesting window into how they thought as to what chivalry means, as to what peacemaking actually means in the 16th century, about how monarchy operates, why things like magnificence were, were such important uh, virtues for them. It just seemed like greed and ostentation to us. But if you want to try and understand, and it's always difficult to try to, to look back in the past, if you want to try to understand why they do the kinds of things they do, why the past, the 16th century, is different from now... Um, then it, it gives you a kind of paradigm or, or a window through which to look. And that, that's the, the approach I took in writing the book, rather than trying to say that you know, this is the most important strategic thing that ever happened in early 16th century Europe. I, I don't think it is. But ideals of universal peace, of warfare, of, uh, of trying to reconcile those two things uh, takes you into all of that. And therefore, it, yeah, well, as I said, it, it's, it's an opportunity to, to speculate upon the mentalities of, of, of monarchy in the 16th century. That was Professor Glenn Richardson. His book, The Field of the Cloth of Gold, is due to be reissued in paperback later this month by Yale University Press. Also look out for his article in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes pieces on the Korean War, Charles Dickens, Working Mothers Through History and a whole lot more.
Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for another lecture from our Medieval Life and Death Day event. 